0: Good morning. Greetings in Christ's name. Thank you, Robert, for that opening. That, was, uh, that fit in very well with what I'd like to share today. The title of my message is The Character of Godliness, and it's taken from Psalm 1. You now, I was thinking, as Robert was speaking, of a case that happened not too far from here many years ago when I was just a young man. And I remember that a man started in the area here, started to build a building. It was a lot like the building you built, Robert. It was kind of a detached garage. And my dad was in an excavator at the time and I think did some work for him, helped him prepare the soil and so on. And he started to work, he started to do the work. He built the frame. And I remember the wood frame, the, the, the trusses were up and I don't know what happened, but he stopped right there. And he never finished that building. Years went by and that building stood there and you could slowly see the wood turn gray. And eventually, they tore it down. And I don't know what happened. I often wondered somehow the cost was not counted or something unforeseen came up in his life. But it reminded me of that when Robert was speaking, how we do need to count the cost. This goes along well with Psalm 1, I believe. Let's read the first Psalm. Starting with verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, "...nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment." nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is a very familiar psalm. Many of you probably memorized it when you were younger. And it's a psalm that has so much packed into it, so much meaning when it talks about character. And I want to talk a little bit about character. What is character? What's the difference between character and reputation? Well, I think character is... I've I've likened it in the past to a house. A house that you build and what's inside that house. The character of the house is what's in the interior. Someone, actually this was a, a Chinese philosopher, and I don't usually quote Chinese philosophers in my messages, but I think he had a good point. When he said, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions watch your actions they become your habits watch your habits they become your character and watch your character it becomes your destiny and I think there's so much truth in that character is the it's the substance of a man it's the best way that I can describe it it's who he really is or a woman it's who she really is it's who you are on the inside reputation is the perception of by others in regard to your character. So character is who you are. Reputation is who others think you are. And the question has always been in in, in a man's life, is he more interested in protecting his character or his reputation? Because there can be a difference. Now we want a good reputation, right? Bible talks about someone when they're called to leadership, they should be They should have a good reputation in the community. People should know them as good men. But when our reputation suffers, and sometimes our reputation suffers unjustly, sometimes reputation and character are very different. What people think we are is very different from who we really are. And that can be from the positive side or from the negative side. Sometimes people are, their reputation is damaged by others who wish to harm them when in fact their character is pure. But the the converse is often true. When people hire what we sometimes call spin doctors, we want to spin things in a particular way. We want to make things look a particular way because we don't want people to know what's really inside our house. And so uh, I remember teaching this to students once at a Christian school and talking to them about the fact that windows are like transparency into our character. So if you have a window and people can look in the window, they get a glimpse of what's inside the house. Now, if you try to fog over the window and you're not transparent, that's because you're trying to hide what's inside the house, right? And so when character suffers and reputation suffers with it, the solution is not to fix your reputation. The solution is to fix your character and then your reputation will follow. And in this psalm, God gives us instruction on how to develop godly character. Now, the sum is divided. I've divided it into five subsections. One is the definition of godly character in the first two verses. The sec- second one is the results of godly character over time, verse 3. And then the character of the ungodly in verse 4. And the result of ungodliness over time in verse 5. And finally, God's awareness of the righteous character in verse 6. These things are not played out in isolation. God is aware of our character. He knows who we are. So what defines godly character? Well, there are two things that are listed. First of all, it's a lack of of evil influence. And then secondly, it's an establishment of godly influence by exposure to the word of God. So we have two things, two two kinds of people in verse one, or it's really two descriptions of the same kinds of people. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So there are three different categories of sinners described here. The first is the counsel of the ungodly. And the ungodly here are those who give wrong life advice to people. They're ungodly men who, by their example and by what they say, try to lead others into evil. And he says, don't walk in that counsel. Now we have that counsel today. We see that everywhere. You have articles written. You have movies that are made. You have all kinds of ways in which people try to tell you that ungodliness is the right way to go. In fact, they look down on those who are Christian, those who stand for right values, and they say, that's, that's evil, that's hateful, that's wrong. You need to go this way, and they point you into ungodliness. The second is stand in the way of sinners, and this is more of an active life. It's, more, it's not just trying to persuade you, but it's, it's the living out of sin. He says, standeth in the way of sinners. And and the word stand represents action. You're on your feet. He says, nor standeth in the way of sinners. He doesn't live out the life of evil. If you look in the Hebrew, the word that is is translated sinners here talks about someone who, uh, let me find it here. We have the right definition. I have a number of them here. take me just a moment okay here it is sinful exposed to condemnation reckoned as offenders those who are offenders those who do wrong and they don't take regard to God's counsel they do what they want to do and then they justify what they've done and so that's how they live their lives that Hebrew word is katao. And then the second, the, the last one are those who are arrogant. He says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And the word here, interestingly enough, in Hebrew is lutz. And it means to scorn or to make mouth at or to talk arrogantly. So these are people who just they're just arrogant in their, uh, in their hatred for God. They're willing to stand up and just boast about their sin. Uh, we've all heard this, we've all seen this. People who are just, they're, they're loud in their willingness to mock God and to stand for evil. We see this especially today. There was a day when you saw this a great deal less because everyone had a certain degree of respect for God. And when you invoked God and you, and you rebuked evil, they tended to slink away. And at night, they came out and did their evil. But today, they're more bold and brash and arrogant. And they say, this is who I am, this is where I stand, and this is what I will do. He says, the man of God does not sit in the seat of the scornful. He doesn't count himself as those who are arrogant. He's humble. He's humble. He stands against that which is evil. So, this is what a man of God does not do. Now, what does he do? In verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So, the Hebrew word here is hagal, which means to muse or mutter or meditate or devise or plot or speak. It means to spend a lot of time just pursing and thinking about the word of God. And this is this can be this becomes a way of life. I don't think this is just something that you can just discipline yourself into doing and saying, I'm going to I'm going to meditate on the Word of God. But it has to it has to come out of a love for God. It's a man who has rejected evil, like and Robert talked about that this morning. He said no to this and yes to that. And when he says yes to righteousness, it becomes his guide. And so day and night, he has this in the middle of his mind. Now, that doesn't mean he sits up and, and reads his Bible all night long and then he staggers out of bed the next morning and he reads his Bible all day long. But it means that his Bible, his, the Word of God, becomes a part of who he is. And so when he encounters situations, there's a little voice that tells him what to do based on Scripture. He knows what to do. He reacts to situations by his knowledge of the scriptures. This is a precious gift. uh, I've often, you know, when I was in school, when I was a young man, I I was in public school and public schools were considerably different then than they are now, although they were already on the way down. When I was very young, when I was in first grade, I remember my teacher having devotionals in the morning, just reading from scripture a little bit, first thing in the morning. By the time I was in high school, things had changed a lot. But I didn't have the opportunity there to do what my children had in in a Christian school. They learned to memorize scripture. They memorized passages of scripture. Now, I did memorize. my parents had us memorize some scripture, and those passages of scripture that I memorized as a child, I can still recite. They're still there. And so when we have exposure to the word of god whether it's memorizing scripture or just learning about the word of god it becomes part of who we are as christians and it guy it provides guidance you know you can you can be confronted with a situation and pop a bible verse or come up in your mind you know what to do there's no question you don't have to say well i don't know for sure What's the right thing here? Now there may be perplexing questions that come up when we're not quite sure how to balance them against the principles of God's Word. But we have a confidence that comes because our delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, why would you delight reading the Bible? It's kind of a dry book sometimes, isn't it? Especially when you've read it it for the 46th time. And yet there's a preciousness about God's Word when we become Christians. Because it becomes personal. We we take the word of God as personal admonition. It's not just a historical book. It is that. And it's not just a book about science, the science of creation. It is that. But it's more than that. It's a personal writing. It's it's that which we take personal as if it were a letter written to us from God. And so we meditate on that. My mom and dad were separated uh, many years ago during World War II when he was away from home and they wrote letters back and forth and those letters my mom had them but mom being mom uh, ordinary thing she burned them because she didn't want us children to delve into her personal life um so we we always kind of you know tease mom about that we kind of held that against her because we wanted those letters and i wish i had them today because i remember being exposed to them as a child but they were love letters they were letters that they wrote to each other and each one, when that letter came in the mail, they grabbed that letter and they just, they soaked it up. It was precious to them. And so it is when we are in love with God and God has made us His child. We have a delight in the law of the Lord. It's not just a duty. It becomes our delight. He wants us to love His Word. And yes, it can be It does require discipline. It does require us to, we have to say, look, I'm gonna set aside some time and read the Bible. Otherwise, there are so many enticing things out there. So many things that capture our interest right up front that the devil has this way of keeping us away from it. But when we take delight in it and we begin to realize that these are the words of hope. And I think as we get older, that tends to be a little bit easier because our days are numbered. And we know that this life that's all around us is fading away and this is what tells us about where we're going and what life is going to be like going forward. So this is the window to our future and the world around us is less and less the window to our future and more and more the window to our past. So, but at any age, I think we can can ask God for a hunger and a thirst. After righteousness and after his word so that our delight is in the law of the Lord he wants us to delight in it because there's a permanence there you know life right now in in the in the world in which we live is dark and uncertain in so many ways I mean we have a pretty good life here in America we're still living well we're still pretty free but we wonder what's going to happen and as we look at the Word of God, as we, as we love that Word and we take comfort in it, it transports us to another world. We don't have to have those trepidations and fears. In verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, I, was, I was reading about oak trees. Uh, recently and just there's so many fascinating interesting things about trees not just oak trees oak trees are especially so but but about trees in general so a tree an oak tree a big fully grown oak tree takes up to a hundred gallons of water a day in order to live Hundred gallons of water. A sequoia tree, on the other hand, takes up to 800 gallons of water. Now, for the children, have you ever gone in the woods and stood behind an oak tree or beside an oak tree and heard a little pump running that's <laughs> pumping those gallons of water up there? Or have you seen an electric line, you know, coming off to an oak tree and connected to it so the pump can run? I haven't because there are none. How does God? How does the oak tree get a 100 gallons of water from the ground up to the top of that oak tree? How does it do it? Well, there's a little process that God has placed in that tree. It's called osmosis. There's a membrane in that tree that allows water to go in one direction, but not the other. And so when those roots are spread all over the ground, they're little capillary roots that spread everywhere and they suck every ounce of grunt water out of, that, out, of those, out of the ground around them. It goes by osmosis. It travels up that little capillary into the main root, up to the trunk, all the way up to where it needs to go. Branches out and nourishes that tree. That's just absolutely amazing. Only God could do that. There is no sound. Oak trees are completely silent. Sequoia trees are completely silent, except when the wind rustles through them. They don't make any noise. They don't create any smell. They don't pollute the air. They're just there. What happens, it's all interior. And so it it is with the man of God, as he develops character. God gives him, inside of himself, what he needs. God puts it there, and it's connected to God. And so he is able to be nourished spiritually. And it's interesting, a tree is, is stabilized in the ground. So there are two things we see here. One is stability, and another is nourishment and growth. So the ground anchors that tree, right? Have you ever seen a tree that's been blown over in the wind? I mean, a, it, 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 an oak tree that is, that is by itself in the middle of a field, is incredibly hard to uproot. They're, they spread their roots everywhere. Now, if it's inside of a forest, it's a little bit easier to uproot because it's protected by the other trees and it doesn't spread out its roots as far. But in either case, it's really hard to uproot an oak tree because that tree sends roots way down deep into the ground and spreads them out far. And it just it's very stable. That ground provides stability. But the same ground provides nourishment and growth as it pulls water out of that tr- out of out of the ground and it goes up to those leaves and notice it says his leaf shall not wither you know that the leaves provide they're filled with why are they green anybody know what, what's in leaves yeah. chlorophyll. chlorophyll very good the Leaves have chlorophyll in them. And what does chlorophyll do? It breaks down water and oxygen and creates sugar, doesn't it? So there's a simple sugar in that tree. And that's how the tree nourishes and grows. God provides leaves. He provides this wonderful, wonderful substance called chlorophyll, which is green. Hence the plants and the leaves are green and it it gives the leaf it gives the tree color but more importantly it nourishes that tree so you know we burn wood at home Uh, we normally don't cut down living trees we we burn dead wood because there's plenty of that i hate cutting down trees I'm i'm a i'm a tree hugger in in some sense of the word not like the environmentalists are but i love trees i hate cutting down trees because they're so beautiful and stately and God put them there and it took years for them to get there and I take a chainsaw 15 minutes or 5 minutes or 2 minutes depending on how big the tree is I just cut it down and then what happens? It lies there and the leaves begin to wither and dry up because the tree dies but when God establishes a tree and when he establishes a man with godly character He doesn't wither up and die. He's there. He has chlorophyll in his leaves, so to speak. He's soaking up the sunshine. And he's using the the power from the sun to convert water and gases from the air into sugar. And that's how the tree is sustained. It's absolutely amazing. It's magical in many ways. And only God can do it. And what does it result in? It results in fruit in his season. Now, the oak tree doesn't bear fruit per se, it bears acorns. And I guess squirrels consider those fruit. Greg was reminding us yesterday of something that he read that was pretty humorous. He talked about this man who was saying, <laughs> you know, God's, God thinks he has such a perfect creation. Well, then why? Why is it that you know, pumpkins grow on vines? These little things down on the ground. And acorns, little tiny acorns, come from these big oak trees. You know, I mean, it should be the other way around. Pumpkins should grow up in these big trees. And of course, he thought that way until he was standing under an oak tree and an acorn fell on his head. And then he realized why God used vines for pumpkins and oak trees for acorns. But these little acorns, you take this little tiny acorn and you plant it in the ground and it takes a while but then a little little, tiny sapling comes up and that sapling develops into a young tree and into a bigger tree and into a bigger tree until it's massive and, and big it depends on what kind of oak red oaks and white oaks i think are different but i think white oaks can live to be several hundred years old far older than we can as humans it's just amazing and in fact did you know that the 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 oldest living uh organism that's known on earth are bristlecone pine trees. They're trees. And they believe they're about 4,000 years old. A living tree that's 4,000 years old. This is the work of God. And He's saying to us, I will make you like a tree. I will establish you and give you stability and nourishment and strength. I will let you grow. I want to do this for you. And so God is not This is how God is. This is His character. He doesn't, when He brings these admonitions to us, He's not just berating us or talking down to us. He's saying, this is what I want to do for you. But you have to let me help you. You have to cooperate with me. And then I can make you like a tree by the rivers of water. I can establish you. And I can make you grow. And you know, this doesn't, some people take this wrongly, I think. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become a mighty financial empire and have millions of dollars. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become world famous and everybody's going to hear about you and know about you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have good health through all your days and live to be 120 years old. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. Any of those things could happen. But far more importantly, he's saying, I will establish you as a man of, of character and good, and I will transport you to heaven. Like Robert mentioned in the opening, for Christians, death is just a doorway to glory. It's not something to be feared anymore. So he's not necessarily saying, this is not a prosperity gospel, as we sometimes call it. But this is saying, I will establish your character like a tree, like a big old oak tree. No, I think it was, wasn't it in the, the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar was warned of his impending end as a king by seeing a vision of a tree and the tree was cut down. Was that Nebuchadnezzar or was that his son? I don't remember anymore, but the tree was cut down and no longer was able to continue providing all this benefit, not only to himself, but to others. You know, another thing that I've thought about in regard to a tree, is that not only does a tree benefit itself, but it benefits others. It's it's a blessing to have a tree. You know, there's shade. There's fruit. There's places for the birds to have nests. There's just so many benefits. There's beauty. There's all these things that come from trees. And this is how it is with character. <clears throat> character in, in, in humans, when you have a well-established godly character, you are a blessing to others. Now, others may hate you sometimes because of your, because of your stand. But ultimately, there's a respect for that character in the hearts of men. And, and, and men will look at you as someone they can trust and someone they can go to for benefit. And then he switches gears in verse 4 and he says the ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away though so i remember as children we lived on a little farm the dad had a 40 acre farm he had a few cows uh, he was not primarily a farmer he kind of did that as a, as a side thing but i always enjoyed growing up on the farm one of the things that we did a few times is that When dad would combine the wheat, sometimes there'd be wheat that would be, uh, there might be some wheat he couldn't get to or it would be on the ground in a pile that got spilled off the wagon or something. But sometimes there would be wheat that would have chaff with it, lots of chaff. The, The covering of the wheat is what we sometimes call the chaff when it peels away. And so we would take that and we would run it through a little screen that would allow us to shake it and the, 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 the wheat would fall out and the wind would, we do it on a windy day, the wind would blow across it. The, the wheat would fall straight down, but the chaff would blow away because the wind could catch it. And that's how we separated the wheat from the chaff. And that's what he's saying here. They're like the chaff that the wind driveth away. The ungodly do not have the established stability and growth that the, ungodly, that the godly have. But what does the Bible say in James? They're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. They're unable to be well established in, in, in godliness. And, and when you look around at the world around us, you see that so much. Yesterday, uh, when we were at um, the uh, Sour Village, by the way, if all of you knew it or not, but Lester's and Wife and I went to Souther Village on Friday night, spent the night, and we there. We had dinner at the, at the barn restaurant. And we thank you as a congregation for that for that gift, for um, Pastor Appreciation Week, that we, we really appreciated that. And we were sitting there, and, and we were sitting under an artificial tree. It was very well done. The tree was so realistic looking now Lester and I were talking about it and say, is that a real tree? Well, it couldn't be a real tree because if it were, it would be dropping leaves and the leaves wouldn't be this green and you know, eventually it would drop branches and, and, and would eventually die. But it looked like a real tree, but there was no life in it. It was just a fake tree, a beautiful tree, a very well done work, but it wasn't real. There was no growth there and, and probably no real stability. You probably could have pushed that tree over with something much more easily than a real oak tree. But the other thing we were talking about, the ladies were talking about glasses and how over the years glasses glasses styles have changed. And you know, sometimes they're really little and they're peaked and they're big and round and they're square and they're and they're they're are all kinds of styles that come and go. And for those of us who've worn glasses over the years, you know th- those styles have changed because when you go to buy new glasses, well you have to choose from the available styles. So when you start looking at your glasses over the years, it's funny how the shapes change and the sizes change. That's how humanity is. I always you know here and there and everywhere trying this trying that you hear all these fads about anything from you know from clothing to to uh, habits to pleasures to food all sorts of fads that constantly change because humans are always looking for something better unless they're established and their character has been established by God and they know what's best and they just want to stay there You can't move them. They are where they need to be and where they want to be and they're established and it takes an awful lot to move them. In fact, when it comes to an oak tree, it can be moved with enough force. But when it comes to a godly character in a human, it cannot be moved. Nothing can move that character. God protects it and keeps it and roots it and all hell can't move it because god has established it but the ungodly are not so and i think god wept about that often in the old testament especially with, when his people israel chose to do wrong I, I you know those those days in the book of judges especially where they were up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down somebody called it the seesaw days you know the the, the children of israel would would repent God would forgive them and they'd live in peace and prosperity for a little while and then they'd forget God and they'd fall into sin and then oppression and then they'd cry out to God and ask for forgiveness and so He'd send a deliverer and then they'd be back up again and then back down they would go. That's kind of how it is when you're not established in God. Children of Israel were not well established in God at that time. But He says, I want something better for you. And He often told them that. He said, I want life for you. Moses said, therefore, why will you die, O Israel? And so God is, is crying out and saying that the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. No stability. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You now, some years ago, uh, Madeleine O'Hare died. Anybody remember her? Remember what she was known for? She was an atheist. She was an atheist who was very loud and very pushy about her atheism. She was the woman who was behind the lawsuits that ended public prayer in many places, especially in schools. And Madeleine O'Hare died some years ago. Before she died, she got in trouble with the IRS and I don't remember, her life ended in a real mess. And I think maybe suicide was the result of that. I don't remember exactly. But I remember talking to someone that I knew at the time Madeleine O'Hare died. And we talked about her and he said, oh yeah, she's the atheist, isn't she? And I said, well, she was. He said, what do you mean? He said, did she change her views? And I said, I'm sure she did. And he said, oh, I see what you mean, because she died. Now she knows there's a God. And I thought about men like Mousy Tongue and Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and all these other people who, are, who were ungodly and bold in their ungodliness. They raged against God. They fought against God. But one of the attributes of the ungodly is temporality fact that they're going to be gone they're here today and they're gone tomorrow so when we think about the result of ungodliness over time one of the things we see is the inability to withstand judgment especially on judgment day can you imagine what mousy tongue is going to do on judgment day he's going to melt like a pole in front of god his mouth is going to be stopped He's not going to say anything and he's going to hear his judgment. This man was extremely bold, probably the most probably the single worst mass murderer in the history of mankind. Is believed to have murdered directly or indirectly at least 80 million of his own countrymen as the dictator of communist China. This man is not going to be bold and brash before God. He will not stand before the judgment And even today, when you see the ungodly, they do not stand against reason and judgment. They chant. They get together and when they demonstrate, they chant. They don't stand and argue because they have no argument. And so they chant slogans. And they think that by number, they can change truth. They argue that truth is relative. And that your truth and my truth are different. And if there's 10 million people who say this is truth, then that makes that truth. No it, no, it doesn't. It doesn't matter how many people I have who say that is East. It's still not East. It doesn't matter how many people I have who, who agree with me on that issue. Truth is truth. And so they do not stand in the way of judgment, whether it's now or at the end of time and they have no influence in the congregation of the righteous. They have no voice there because they're ungodly, and they cannot affect the congregation of the righteous. Those who are righteous won't give any credence to their arguments, but more importantly, neither does God. They can rant and rave all they want. They can raise their fists toward heaven they can curse the God of heaven. They can say what they want, but in the end, it doesn't mean anything. Not a thing. So when you think about the heritage of the godly, the person who was like that tree that was established forever, when, that person, when you think of that person's heritage and what he left, his legacy, what he left behind, it's powerful, it means a lot. It can change minds. But what is the legacy of a man like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Tongue? What is their legacy? They have no legacy. The ungodly have no legacy. They leave nothing behind because they're selfish and they're focused on themselves and they really leave nothing for the rest of, a, of, the rest of humanity. They're not like a tree, they're like chaff. Hear it today and gone tomorrow. And then finally, in closing, when we see the last verse, he gives real hope to us as believers. He says, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And that word knoweth is a very intimate term. It means that God knows intimately. You know, we have, um, as families, and especially as husband and wife, but as families in general, you have intimate secrets, so to speak, things that no one else knows about, things that you don't necessarily tell everybody else about. It's just, you know, it's inside the family. It's little things that that you may, uh, it's not that you're hiding evil, but I'm just saying that there are little, little things that you don't just share with everyone. They're kind of kept to themselves. Well, this is sort of what that Connotes, but it's it's even more so. It's a it's almost like a sacred secret between God and the righteous. He knows their hearts, he knows who they are. Remember when Job or when Satan came and and told God, Yeah, let me have at Job. Let me have at him. I'll show you what he really thinks. God said, I know my servant Job. That's the word know that he was talking about here. His intimate understanding of Job's character, his confidence. In Job. That's amazing. But God has confidence in his people because he knows their way. He knows their heart. But it says, but the ungodly are not so. It's so sad. He says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. I just think that when we think about it, one of the saddest things, probably, probably the saddest thing that I can think of is a lost soul. Think about the end of time and that lost soul forever removed from the knowledge of God. Gone. Not able to interact with the God of heaven but separated from him. And yet, that's what he says. The way of the ungodly shall perish. They're going to be gone. So I think the choice here is stark and clear. He says you can be like a tree established, or you can be like chaff that's blown away by the wind. It's your choice because God will help you be like that tree. Your life, that doesn't mean, again, as I said before, it doesn't mean that our lives on earth are necessarily going to be pleasant or easy. It doesn't mean that we're going to be rich and famous. It just means that the character that God establishes in His people, He knows and will preserve. And that character will live on and be refined further through the ages of eternity. But for those who say no to God, And remain ungodly. They're gone. They're not going to be there. Their way shall perish. So I just trust that each of us will not only take this seriously for ourselves, because this invitation isn't just for us, but it's for everyone. And we can offer that invitation to others because God has given it to all of humanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the graphic, illustration that you give us in Psalm 1 of the character of godliness and what you want for all of mankind what you want every man every woman every boy and every girl to become you want to establish that character of godliness in us you want us to grow and be stable and you want us to endure forever so we pray father that your Spirit would convict us and direct us and help us, Lord, so that everything that we say and do would be centered around that concept and that understanding that you want to develop our character. And sometimes that process is painful, Lord. Sometimes it hurts, but you're the author of it, and you will develop our character and make us be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.